You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Good evening and thanks for joining me here on this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan, back after the Halloween break, which I hope you all enjoyed. And for me, it involved a trip to Galway for the fourth Food in the Age, a coming together of top international chefs, food media, food enthusiasts and food producers for a two-day food symposium on the Wild Atlantic Way. When I was there, I got to sit down with fellow Northern Irelander, Diana Henry, who is an award-winning writer, journalist and author of 11 books. And of course, the food is always under scrutiny at events where food is the focus. So it was great to meet Mark Anderson, culinary director in Ireland for workplace catering company Gather and Gather, who fed the troops during the two days of the symposium. But before we hear from Diana and Mark, let me remind you how to get in touch with me here at The Best Possible Taste. The email is s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. So Diana Henry has a weekly column in the Daily Telegraph. She also writes for magazines in the UK and the US, is a regular broadcaster on BBC Radio 4 and hosts podcasts for Prince Street in the US. She's won numerous accolades for her journalism and books, including awards from the James Beard Foundation in the States and from Fortnum and Mason and the Guild of Food Writers in the UK. And as I said, she's written 11 books and her latest one is How to Eat a Peach. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. So we're going to talk about... How to eat a peach, because I I was looking at how to eat a peach last night and I said to my seven-year-old daughter, do you like this, feel this, what does it remind you of? And she said, oh, it's like a peach. And I said, isn't that a lovely cover? She said, yes, it is, but I think they could have done it differently. I said, well, do tell, because I'm meeting Diana Henry tomorrow and I will tell Diana Henry what your seven-year-old So what was the idea? Just to do the peach in the peach skin. Oh, she's 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 going to be a designer. And do the rest... Like an apple skin. Oh my God. Oh my God. Spare me from clever children. That's Hannah Noonan. It's a great name for a book and there's a story behind it. Tell us a story about being in Italy for the first time. Um, oh my, I honestly lost my mind when I went to Italy for the first time. Because you know, growing up at my, in, in my time in Northern Ireland, you did not go places abroad because, you know, you had to go either via London or from Dublin and there were four of us and it was too expensive. So we never went anywhere except for Dublin. Um, and actually, I think that was an advantage because then when I did go to places, you know, when I went to France for the first time and then when I went to Italy, I would just be like, oh my God, it's so intensely French, it's so intensely Italian. And I went to Tuscany and Umbria the first time I'd ever been in Italy and we drove all the way, me and my boyfriend in this clapped-out car, drove all the way down through France and on into Italy. And the last night that we were there, we went because I, I cooked most of the time, we had this little apartment, but the last night we went out to this little simple outdoor restaurant, and the people at the table next to us, I didn't even have this meal, it was the people at the t- table next to us, when it came to dessert, they had a bowl of peaches and a bottle of very cold Moscato brought out. And they sat there and they have the peach and slice it and dropped it into a wine glass and then they put the Moscato in and then they let it sit and macerate for a while. And then they drank the wine and they ate the peaches, which now were sort of flavoured of each other. And I thought, 
well, apart, this was a highly sophistication for a start. But I also thought, my God, that is such a really good idea. A really good idea because it's very simple, but also because you're really tasting both of those things. It's completely uncluttered. You're not having to, you know, have some... And I do like petite street, but it's not a complicated pastry. It is the height of summer. The peaches are perfect, and the white ones are really perfumed. And, I mean, what better could you do? So that really had an impact on me to kind of, like, do things that weren't too complicated. Um, But also to think of dishes that kind of captured the essence of a place, because that... Out of that trip, that was the dish, I think, and it's, better. I mean, it's hardly a dish, you don't cook it, um, that really stayed with me, and it really seemed to say, you know, Italy to me. It's not fussy. And the book is very nostalgic, because you do have lots of different stories in it and places that you were, and even for me, one of the first recipes is the, the leeks, the Breton leeks. With the vinaigrettes. And I was just like, God, yeah, like it's oh, too many years to remember since I did my year out in France, and sure, I would have been scoffing those, those by things. the bucket. They were delicious. But I probably haven't really had them since then, and I was saying, I must make those. Why haven't I done that? I just, um, I think my I grew up with very good food and my mum was a very good cook and I started like baking when I was about six. But then it was when I started to travel as well that I really, I was amazed by food everywhere, especially France really had a big influence. I mean, it does on people my age. But I went to to do an exchange. So I stayed with this family for six weeks in the summer and they had a little um, cottage I mean, when I say a cottage, it was literally falling down. There was no, the loo was down in a field. And when you had to have, there was no bath. So when you had to have a wash, everybody had to leave the house and you had to do it in the kitchen. So there was nothing sophisticated about it. But I thought it was completely paradise because they, they cared about food every day, right from breakfast to dinner, what you were going to have. And with the girl who was my exchange partner, we were picking herbs and, you know, she taught me how to make vinaigrette and we we're going off to get rabbits and that kind of thing. So it was a stage on from what I had had in Northern Ireland, I suppose. And then every time I travelled, every time I went somewhere, it was it was the food I would really kind of notice. That seemed to be how you got to the heart of somewhere, in a way. Um, and the whole book... Is it nostalgic? I didn't mean it. It's ended up being kind of slightly memoirish, which I didn't intend at all. It was just going to be a book of menus. But then when I put the menus together, I realised that an awful lot of them were about place. They were about places I'd been or places I'd loved or places I'd only kind of fleetingly been to and wanted to go back to because it made me so excited. But I think I am a product of my time and place in that I'd never done any travelling. So when I started to do it, it was like, oh, my God everything seemed fascinating to me and it has stayed that way and I love the way you say in the book about entertaining you know not dinner parties entertaining I have a friend in Dublin and she had said to me one time like do you have dinner parties and I said no we don't have dinner parties I said we have people round for their tea yes people round we have people round for their tea but not <laughs> dinner parties and then they were down for a weekend and we were having dinner and she was like this is a dinner party and I was like no it's not well so we didn't we didn't have them growing up so it wasn't a thing although my mum let me have one I was about I think it was about 15 when I had the first dinner party although nobody called it that and I had friends around from school and I mean made three courses and had candles and everything and pineapple ice water pineapple water ice yes in the pineapple shells that when I brought it out it said why are we having mashed potato now it's like oh my god you complete heathens <laughs> um <laughs> 
So um, I just liked. I just liked. I kind of liked occasions. I liked marking food with setting time aside to do it, and then having people over. But do you like organising and the planning side of it? The, the way that you put the menus together. Oh, I love to think about the menus. Oh my god, I would spend like eight hours on that. Like, should I do this dish? Should I do the other dish? There's just something about thinking of flavours and how one course dovetails into the next that I really, really love and it's a pleasure purely for me I mean nobody who actually comes round ever particularly notices I don't think they just was it nice food yeah whatever Um, but I like that whole thing but they must feel terribly lucky to get an invitation to come and eat oh do you know what I used used to do um, I don't do it now but I used to do such complicated things before I had children I used to do such complicated dishes such complicated menus that I think I actually got quite fed up because um they didn't. See, I was in the kitchen, and that's a bad. That's a bad hostess. That's a bad way to entertain. So I, I cook less complicated things now. But I'm quite a selfish cook. I cook because I like to cook. You know, I don't actually think. Oh, I'd love to see so and so and so and so. Okay, issue the invitations. Then think what will I make them. I generally think. Oh, I'd really like to cook this dish. Now, what would go with that? Did it? Put it all together, and I think. Now, who would like to eat that? So I do it the wrong, well, the wrong way, the opposite way around to most people. And you grew up not far from Portrush, where there would have been a catering college, but you didn't yes. think that you ended up doing English I went literature to do at Oxford. Um, at that time, nobody, it wasn't, nobody went on to, do, to be a chef or anything if you also were good at your schoolwork. And I did love reading as my other like huge passion. I love it, and writing. Um, so that was the obvious thing to do. But when I when I was at Oxford, um, Raymond Blanche is coming on the scene. I mean, the first wonderful meal I had was at the end of my first year in Oxford, and I went to his place called Le Petit Blanc in summertime. That was part of um, Oxford, just on the outskirts. And then I, when he, when he moved to the Mamor Cat Saison, I would go out with the same boyfriend who I went to Italy to eventually. Uh, just to read the menu on the wall in the glass lit case outside the Mamma Rica. I mean, we couldn't afford to, to go there. Although when I made my very, the very first paycheck I got um, was for writing a piece about wine. And it was, it was, it was 110 quid. And that's what I used it for. I went to the memoir. It's blue it all. Blue it all. And it was an incredible night. It was really wonderful. So, you know, you did English literature at mm-hmm. Oxford and then you did the journalism. I did journalism at City University and then I joined the BBC. And at that, were you always thinking in your mind, I want to get into a food type, I want to combine Absolute, food Absolutely with not, no. I really just always thought I would work in television. And that was what, and I felt that when I, when I started at the BBC, I really had a sense of, I've come home, this is my place. This is the place I felt most at home, including home my whole life this place just really suits me um and what was it about it that suited you that made you feel so I just seemed I just seemed to have like-minded people around me people who wanted to make things I really like and people who were you know thinking and chatting there's a thing about making television which is quite similar to cooking in a way it's both practical and cerebral so it takes thinking and it takes doing and that combination really worked for me I mean I wouldn't have wanted to go on and do academic work because in your head all day no that's not for me I wanted to make things as well and that's what you do when you're doing television it is a perfect combination of that and it was good fun it was just really good fun um and then I wouldn't have um, left except that I 
When I was 30, I thought to myself, because I loved food so much, and it was my hobby, I would spend weekends exhausting myself, like making veal stock and reducing it all down and all the rest of it. And That's such dedication, isn't it? I just, it was just it was my hobby. It was my hobby. And I used to spend hours on this stuff. Um, but then I went to Leith School of Food and Wine. I decided, you know, in, it's hilarious when I look at it now. I was 29 and I thought, oh my God, I'm so old. And I really love cooking and I'm only going to pass this way once. So I really ought to go and do this course. So they gave me unpaid leave and I was allowed to go to Leith's for a term. And at the end of the second day, I resigned my job at the BBC and I, and I went on and I did the year at Leith's. And that meant then after that, that I went, had to go back um, as a freelancer to the independent sector. I didn't go back to the BBC immediately. I did some, some stuff elsewhere. I did breakfast television. Um, and I knew by the end of that year at Leeds, I couldn't be a chef. I couldn't be a chef. And also, I didn't really want to be. It's very difficult when you train, when you're busy training to do something and everyone else wants to do it. You get, you get carried along. You think, this is what I want to do too. Um, I, I could never have hacked it at all. I couldn't have taken the hours, the physicalness, the stress of it, the heat of it. But as well as that, they, they are, it's about getting dishes out fast, the same dishes to the same standard every day. That's not what really interested me about food. And also, I was more interested in food from people's homes than I was in chefy stuff. So, you know, I had already discovered Claudia Roden and, and Jane Rickson, and they talked about food within a context, and that's what really interested me food from all over the world and what were the stories behind it and how did you cook it and how did, come this, how did this dish come about and what are the variations on it and I have no idea why that interests me but that just always has you could tell you start telling me any stuff that's kind of obscure about food and I will listen um, but it wasn't until I then had my first child and people always said why aren't you writing about food why aren't you writing about food you're so obsessed with it and it was just like I didn't, I didn't think it was very important I still don't think it's hugely important you know I enjoy it but I'm not saving the world and making television partly was about I suppose making things that you know were for the greater good for kind of like greater understanding of this that and the other um, but when Ted was born I went to Channel 4 when he was eight months old to do a series which was um, a sort of social history of gardening in Great Britain. And I thought, well, you know, that's not a depressing subject. That'll be fine. And it won't be, the hours won't be too terrible. In six weeks, I was never home before nine o'clock. And I was taking him with me, this eight-month-old, and feeding him and everything when I was away at the weekend doing reckeys in these gardens. And they were lovely gardens. But it just, it wasn't going to work. Um, I mean, I had a, I had someone to take care of Ted, so on a practical level it could have worked, but I would have to have cared a lot less. And this thing of leaving him with a nanny every day, it just did my head in. And I just thought, this is not why I had this child, and I missed him dreadfully. Actually, I don't think it did Ted any harm, but after six weeks I just went in one, it was the end of my TV career, I went in one Monday morning I said, I'm not doing this anymore, because I am so unhappy. I mean, really, I was crying and eating Jaffa cakes. That was how bad it was. So that was it. And um, I, I wrote some things on spec, sent them off. The good thing about having a journalism training is that I could look at magazines. I could see what they did. Mm. You know you know the stuff. You kind of say, this is, this is the sort of things they write. So there's no point in sending stuff that's different than that. And you probably had a pile of those magazines at home. 
Oh, yeah. And I kind of, you know, I just knew journalistically the way to go about it. So I got commissioned quite quickly. It'd be a lot harder now, probably, because not everybody wants to be a food writer. I don't know why. Um, but I got commissioned. And I also um, ghost wrote a chef's book. I was in to do, asked to do that. And then I had just a fortuitous meeting with a publisher who asked to see me, and I assumed that it was about ghostwriting. And at the end of the meeting, I just said, oh, this is a, I've got an idea for a book, this book, Crazy Water Pickle Lemons, which had been in my head for a long time. And they just took it. They took it there and then on the spot. And again, because I'd been involved with broadcasting, I went back from that meeting and I did a mood board and I wrote up a treatment like I would do for television. And then they took it to the sales team. And because you've done a mood board, it practically exists because you've got the visuals They were able to visualise. Yes, and it was in my head already. So, you know, they're not going to have to pay me very much because nobody knows who the hell I am. And I suppose they thought they might as well take a punt. And and they did. And, of course, you're very well known now. And I asked a couple of people, I said, okay, what, what is it about Diana Henry's recipes? And they all said to me, her recipes work. Yeah. That a lot of recipe books... No, they don't know, work. And then, of course, you blame yourself. Oh, I did something wrong there. No, I take, it very, I take very seriously what it is that I'm doing in the same way as I did when I was in television. People will buy ingredients to cook your stuff. And if it doesn't work, they'll have wasted money and they will feel bad about themselves. And I don't want either of those two things to happen. Plus, I don't do very complicated chefy food. I mean, that's not the way I cook, really. So they should all be doable. But I get very upset if I hear that things haven't worked. But you test and test and test. You test up to eight times if necessary. Oh, do you know what? I made those Portuguese pastéis de nata. Do you know how many times... Do you know how long that took me? Go on. I did those 22 times over two weeks because the Telegraph wanted them for an Easter menu and I tried all sorts of recipes from, you know, from Portuguese books. My mother and father had a house in Portugal so I got them to ask Portuguese friends to translate it into English and I tried their stuff. Nothing worked. And I eventually, I eventually worked, worked it out what... I mean, I think they're actually nicer than most pastéis de nata I've ever had. But I was determined to get that right. Yeah, and eight... Sometimes it's the simplest things as well. Like I did this... Um, Somebody told me about a thing they'd had in Greece that was with, like a crustless pie in a way, with eggs, yogurt, a little bit of polenta, some flour, feta, all the rest of it. And I thought, God, that sounds really good. But I kept making it, and it would be too firm. So I kept having to adjust the amount of polenta in it and the temperature, and then eventually hit on the thing where the temperature was at one particular um, temperature to roast the courgettes in and then you turn it down and you and you do the, the custard, the egg and yogurt based custard and I nearly gave up on that because I thought this should work but I, every single time I get the quantities are slightly out, it's not, it's, maybe it's just a boring dish, maybe this is not a great dish and then the eighth time I did it it was like oh my god this is kind of like it's not like a quiche because you've got the yogurt in it as well and you've got the polenta but it was still it was light still it was kind of light but substantial and I thought oh this is good but I got fed up with it I mean really the eighth time I think I wasn't going to do it again if I hadn't worked that time it was just like well I'm giving up on this thing and the attention to detail in the book that it says you know you make everything in a fan oven but check the manufacturer's instructions if your oven isn't a fan one and eggs is all medium eggs unless otherwise stated yes it will because you know you can write recipes as well as you can but you can't 
you know, then there are variables that you can't control. But I think a lot of people wouldn't even be bothered putting that into the book. Your attention to detail and your desire for the reader to make oh, no. it and it for to turn. Do, on, do you know on. what happens at the weekend? At the weekend, um, you know, I get because it's you know Saturdays and Sundays and people make special meals. I get all of these pictures through on Instagram of people who've cooked dishes or they made it for Mother's Day or they've had a whole part and they've done recipes from this book and recipes from that book and it practically makes me cry because yes. Great, that is what I'm supposed to have done. I mean, I think, apart from inspiring people in the in the books that are a bit more literary, I think I'm supposed to empower people. I think that's my job. I have to help them to be cooks. And you do a great job at it. So I have one final question for you. We were talking about entertaining there and having people around for your tea. Yes. And I'm going to reverse it because I know you like to decide what the menu is. But, but I'm going to give you the guest list, okay? Oh, my God. It's a Northern Irish guest list, okay? Obviously, I am there. Okay. We have Claire Smith. And, of course, we need to keep the gender balance. I think I'd be a bit scared so, looking for her. Liam Neeson. Oh, my God. So what are you going to make for us? And I was I was not happy to hear that coriander was your favourite herb. So well, it's it's the Brit- <laughs> it's the favourite herb in Britain. Do you okay. not like it? Not, you know, I used to really not like it. I'll tell you where I actually was one night years ago in the Remore in Portrush. Okay. And I had a chicken dish and it was like, oh my God, this tastes like washing up liquid. Do you know what? But you probably, Do you know there is a thing? Basically, you can't make yourself like coriander if you don't. You get that soapy taste. Yeah. People who like it don't. So this was years ago. People taste it differently. And I was at work then the following week and my boss said, oh, how'd you get on there more? I said, oh my God, I had this chicken dish. It was horrible. horrible. Three weeks later, she came in and said, I had that soapy dish as well. But now, I don't get it now. Well, maybe maybe, you're, maybe your tasting has changed or something. However, I was at something recently and she said, oh, this is full of coriander, but it wasn't that soapy taste. Okay. So maybe my taste buds have changed, you know. Okay. It could be. Yeah. Well, it was a long time ago. Okay, so I have the three of, I have the three of you there. Um, I think... Ooh, let me think about the starter in a minute. I think I might do lamb shanks in stout. Lovely. I think I might do that. Okay. What time of year is it? Shall we say it's... Uh, well, we'd say it's this time of the year. Okay. Well, let's. We have to be a little bit colder than this for that. I think. Oh, I think Liam would like that. You think he would? I think he. I don't know whether. I don't know whether. I don't know whether Claire would or not. But I think that would be. That would be good. And do you know what I had the other night? I would do this because this is really interesting to me. I was at Kai Restaurant in Galway, and they bring the potatoes out. They have the champ on the menu, okay? And it's not like my mother's champ. They have, I don't know what variety of potato they use, but it's absolutely delicious. She, the chef there, and she's Kiwi, she's not Irish, she doesn't do that thing of infusing the milk with the, with the scallions in it. She puts them straight in, she uses loads of butter, and she doesn't peel her potatoes. Really? Yes. So you get these, I mean, they're delicious mashed potatoes with this fantastic butter. And all she does is she just snips the scallions into it. So I think I might have to, I mean, he'd probably say, this isn't the right way. But I think I would have to have um, Liam taste this kiwiid champ. And then I would have roasted carrots, I think. This is, very, this is very meaty and big, isn't it? I think it's because of him. I think he's leading this. <laughs> yes. And um, I think for pudding, I might have an apple tart. 
I think he'd love the after. I love We're all about him. Cards. I didn't care. So it is no, Claire, Claire Smith can just, she can take up the rear. Um, but yeah, I think I'd have an after. And it's not something I... Funny enough, my mother made it a lot, and I loved the one we had at home with the crust on top. When I make, make it these days, I generally make... Um, a French one because that was one of the first things I learned to make and it looks very impressive but I think we just have a normal Irish apple tart and at the beginning to start with we might have mussels or we might just have if I could get hold of them um, Dublin Bay prawns cooked in butter and garlic and parsley maybe maybe some oysters as well oh yeah you could have those before (laughs) right at the very beginning I just interviewed Richard Corrigan, actually, for the Irish Times. I was with him last week. Oh, he had good oysters in there. Very good oysters. What do we have after that? Turbot. Really gorgeous turbot with sweet corn from his place, um, Virginia Park Lodge in County Cavan, with that and bearnaise. We didn't have a pudding. But um, he was a tonic to be with, actually, because obviously it's kind of refined and he's learned French techniques and stuff like that. But he completely loves Irish ingredients. He loves it. So I think I would I would be concentrating on flavour and what is the best what is the best stuff that we could get. And there'd have to be wheat and bread in there somewhere. Yeah. With the prawns probably. Well Liam, if you're listening, it's an open invitation. But I have to <laughs> he'd be, be very there full well. at the he'd be very full at the end of it, don't you think, Sharon? I think it might be a bit much for him. Oh, I'd say he's hardcore. His mother was a dinner lady at our school. Was she really? Yeah, he'd be well able for it. He was brought up in, in, in good stuff like that. Diana, it's been lovely to talk to you. It's been great. Thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome. Enjoy the rest of Food in the Age. I will. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break, the award-winning author Diana Henry, who is from Northern Ireland but now lives in London, shared some insights into her latest cookbook, How to Eat a Peach, and designed a mouth-watering menu for a discerning group of dinner party guests, all from Northern Ireland, which included Hollywood actor Liam Neeson, Michelin star chef Claire Smith and little old me. If you're just tuning in now and you missed that interview, you can catch it on the Best Possible Taste podcast or on West Limerick 102FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am. The podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app and it's also on the taste.ie website. Now, my next guest this evening has a passion for good food and developing new and exciting dishes. Having worked both internationally and in Ireland, Mark Anderson has obtained a wealth of experience in both the food and restaurant industry. He is the culinary director in Ireland for workplace catering company Gather and Gather, who set out to reimagine and reinvent workplace dining. Their chefs are encouraged to work with locally sourced ingredients and practised what they preach at this year's Food in the Edge, where the only problem with the menus was trying to decide what to have. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Mark, Gather and Gather are responsible for the wonderful food over the, the two days at Food on the Edge here in Galway. Tell us a little bit about Gather and Gather and what it's all about. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, yeah. We've just done a large, large lunch downstairs for about 600 people and 
by all accounts, the feedback has been excellent. Um, it's very simply, gather and gather, we do workplace catering, predominantly in Dublin, but you know, uh, we're open to suggesting that we go looking uh, for clients everywhere, but they have to be clients that kind of understand what we're about. We don't want to be just like everybody else, because that's too easy. Uh, we have a lot of really, really skilled, passionate uh, chefs that like and work with quality produce. So that hasn't always been the model, uh, but it's the model that we've adopted. And luckily it resonates with a lot of the techie firms and some of the solicitors and um, some of the more creative uh, companies. So we've really been able to resonate and pitch in with them. And we feel like like our partnership with them, I hate calling the partnerships or transactional partnerships. I don't want that. I want people that want to invest in their the people that are working for them and give them a really good food experience. And that's where we come in. So yeah, we do workplace catering from we feed on an average in 17 different sites around Dublin, 3,000 plus people. Uh, with daily deliveries, fresh fish, uh, meats, we have fantastic relationships with our veg man. In some of our sites, we grow our own herbs on the rooftops. Uh, so yeah, we, get, we, we try our best, we get lots of things wrong, but you know, uh, we, we still have the principles of what a good restaurant or hotel, or some of the chefs that are on stage or gather at uh, Food on the Edge, that they adopt that we just do it at scale. So you mentioned quality ingredients there, and I think a lot of industrial type catering... I hate that word. Yeah, people in that space, it's all about the cost per person, they're not mm. thinking about the quality of the ingredients, which you're very passionate about, yeah. and which gather and gather. But I think I think it's every, every week still have a budget to work from um, and you know just because our budgets may be different you know we don't want to work in an establishment where cost prohibits you doing good food because that's that's not the right message for anybody uh, so so we wouldn't say we're picky about our clients but our clients have to understand what we're about and our principles otherwise we just become the same as everybody else and we just try to be different and in order to do that uh, you need really really talented chefs and I'm very, very lucky. Like, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I had nothing to do with lunch today. Like, I mean, I've got three of my senior chefs who came down from Dublin that look after our three different, very environments that came down and, and, and helped with the students from GMIT and from Shannon help put that together. And I wouldn't have those chefs working for me unless I could offer them a quality produce delivered daily and a relationship that they can build up with their veg man or with their meat supplier or with their fish man or with people like they have on the roost. Uh, so th- that's, that's what we try to make different. And it sounds really simple, but it is simple. But to me, it's a no-brainer. Give your staff good, nutritious food mm-hmm. and you'll reap the benefits for it because you know if they're filling up every day on the greasy chips and the greasy food yeah. then how do you expect them to, to not Be productive. suffer that 3pm slump and in the, the other thing, we, we, we work in a lot of the tech sector um, and their approach is very different and they see their food programme as a way of enticing talent to work for them so they want a really good food program they want like uh, they, they want a really good on trend they want it healthy they want it really good tasty they want it to change on a daily basis so in some of our sites where we feed 1200 people for lunch we change our menu every day um, all the time and we don't go back every four weeks and repeat I think um, it must be so exciting for the people that work there to come in every day for a chef it's brilliant it's like you told me because you're working Monday to Friday day hours you're getting weekends and bank holidays off but you're still getting a chance to experiment you're still getting a chance to work with good quality produce you're still getting a chance to be expressive but you can also have a bit of a life balance so it is really good but it's still it's still tough it's a st- tough kitchens but uh Culturally, we've taken a different approach, and, and this all sounds. Everybody asks me, "What's the secret?" There isn't a secret. It's good food, good chefs, and a right culture in the kitchen. And I think then you can go and challenge and, and, and see can you make things different. 
Well, tell us about the menu today here at Food and the Edge. You had a vegetarian option. You so had we had we had a, we had three different dishes on today, and we'd change them again tomorrow. So we had a braised short rib of beef with some smoked mash, pickled mushrooms, and a bee pollen um, on top with a little bit of a sauce. And then we had uh, we had some uh, charred broccoli salad that went alongside that. We had a vegetarian with roasted butternut squash and some Irish feather, um, and then we had a little uh, bulgur wheat uh, salad to go with that. And then we had some chicken from the friendly farmer there that we just very lightly uh, with some herbs. A nice little sauce with it, and again a salad. So we've done complicated, and I think the biggest compliment is when you get some of the superstar chefs coming up and saying that was just really, really good, wholesome food, and um, uncomplicated, not all foams and gels, just really good food. Given the respect it's taken in the kitchen um, and executed, hopefully well, and uh, yeah, it seems to go down very well. So we're very happy. Well, I'm not a superstar chef, but I did thoroughly. Yeah, right. I had the vegetarian option and the lentils and everything, and I just thought, you know, it was such a nutritious, tasty yeah. type lunch. Really, what we all needed after the long morning. Yeah, and, 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 and I'm glad you said that because we, we approach whether it's whether it's a beef or whether it's chicken or whether it's fish. Um, or vegetarian, they all get the same respect. So just because it's a vegetarian vegan dish, it doesn't mean it gets the same thought process as anything else. So, um, and, and that's working when you're working in sectors where there's a lots of millennials with lots of different trends. It makes our chefs that bit more sharper, a bit aware to what the trends are out there. Um, so it's a bit of a challenge for them because they're writing a menu every day. Um, but then, but that's what they like working to work. Now you have been on the other side of the fence at Foot in the Edge because you were a delegate a couple of yeah. years ago and you were really inspired by the whole event. This is my third Food in the Edge um, and I suppose I, I'm, I'm a bit blown away. I've been asked to speak tomorrow. So like you've got all these one star, two star Michelin chefs and this person has this and, and then it's myself that do workplace catering. <laughs> so it's a little bit uh, daunting. But I suppose speaking to JP, he, he kind of recognised that we, especially after the first one, when I listened to Massimo and Sean Brock and people like that. And then last year, it's just some of the guys that were talking about their wages and their food programmes and Matt Orlando and Sassu and all of that. They just, you can't help being sport. So as I'll say tomorrow, um, you can either grow a beard and get some tattoos and pretend you're like them, <laughs> or you can go back and try to do something different. So we took the latter approach. But that, you know, everybody goes on about culture, and that's, that's a really good word, but you have to live that culture. So you have to go and enforce that change from the top all the way down. So we really encourage everything from a kitchen porter or a dishwasher or a commie chef or a young chef to be able to challenge some of our senior chefs if they don't see them doing things the right way. They've got the autonomy to call people out on that. They've got, the, they've got the freedom to go and come up with ideas, and it's up to our chefs to not bat those ideas away. Is how can we get that idea onto a counter? And that sounds really stupid and simple, but um, it's a culture. And I, really, I keep saying that, but you have to do that even when people aren't looking. You have to do that day in, day out. And we don't get it right every day. We'd be stupid to think we could. But even when we get it wrong, it's how we go back and press reset and say, okay, what can we do to make it better? Because, you know, if we don't, even though we do have day hours and it's a bit more appealing than probably long shifts, you know, there's not a lot of chefs out there. So we have to go that little way uh, to make sure that we accommodate and look after. And, and they're very different, the chefs today. They, they're, they're probably programmed and trained a little bit different. They, they, you know, they, they function in a different way. And we just need to understand how that is so we can get the most out of them. And also provide them with a place where they're happy to work. Uh, because I'm honestly of the opinion that I don't know anybody that gets up in the morning that wants to go to work and have a bad day. So my job is just to remove any blockages. And I try to get it right. Don't always do get it right. But I'm lucky I've got a great team of chefs around me. Um, and we all try to do the right thing. And we think we've made a difference. But hopefully we can keep going. Well, tell me a bit about your culinary career and the background. Gather and Gather is only in Ireland a few years. Mm. Like, where were you working? So I'm with Gather and Gather four years now. Uh, before that, I worked in some uh, workplace catering as well. But before that, I worked in Hilton and Sheraton. I worked in 
um, some Michelin star restaurants in London. I travelled extensively around Europe and the States. Um, and I went to college in Calgary Street. So I've got all the stories, horrific and good, from the hotel and restaurant background. Um, but I made a decision like, when my kids were born, which are my 19-year-old twins, that I, I, I didn't want to sacrifice and see my kids growing up. And I, did, I couldn't commit fully. Um, in a job that where I wasn't going to be around. So I made a decision to go and change and go into workplace catering. But I'd worked um, in hotels and restaurants. I'd done, done my time. But, um, and I'll talk about it in my, in my talk tomorrow. But I, I still found when I went to workplace catering, you kind of feel like that you're kind of... Um, it's a little bit of resentment. You're giving up on yourself. You're kind of sacrificing your career just to go take the easy option. So I decided that, listen, well, if I'm going in to do this... Let's see what we can do and make it different. Let's see how we can we make it better. So that's the kind of journey I'm on. And food and the edge, like it's probably the best and the worst thing that'll ever happen to you. You come down and it's pretty inspiring, but you can feel pretty inadequate walking away that you're not doing that. Um, so you have to make a decision what you want to do. Um, and your head is mush because there's so many things going on. You hear so many great stories and ideas. And if you can just filter them and take two or three away and start making those changes, um, I think you'll have a positive impact both in your own kitchens, but also imagine if, you, imagine if you've got chefs working for you that have learned and have picked up those ideas and they go off and run their own kitchens. Surely we're just going to make the industry that bit better. And I think it's a brilliant industry. And can you give me a few examples of inspiration that you've taken from being here in previous years that you've put into practice? It's in very difficult workplace? to put into words, but culturally we made things different. Um, so again, so, so we asked when we opened one of our buildings, one of our flagship buildings, we got everybody to commit um, and give us 10 words that would make the, what they meant that this kitchen was going to be very, very aspirational. And from, from all those words, from kitchen porters to front of house to the senior chefs, we picked 10 words and we said, right, okay, that's what we're all going to hold you all accountable to, but that's what you hold us accountable to. So it's very, very strong when a comedy chef comes up to the head chef and says, listen, I don't think we've been great today. I don't think we've done that today. Um, or we pick a word or they, they say listen that, that, that can be really, really really centred we've started doing stuff with uh, the Peter McVerry Trust they grow some herbs and vegetables in their detox centre um, and we buy it off them at market price and take it in and incorporate it into our menus it's very very small um, but it's a start um, but the sense of purpose that they get out that their stuff is being used for something um, we're going to go and now look at maybe writing a very very simple cookery book for them for when people that come off the streets and move into a home that we can teach them how to cook the basics not chefy, just very, very basics. We've tackled food wastage. Our food wastage at the moment in some of our sites is nearly as low as 3% against purchases. And when you're doing volume, that's quite substantial. So our chefs are now much more educated and much more aware of what they're doing and how they, even at a chef to party, a comedy sous chef or head chef, how what they do on a daily basis can impact on a bigger scale. Um, so there's some of the small things that we've done and also we've just engaged with IT talent um, and we've started an in-house chef training program which they're going to validate to a level 5 fee tech so, which is not just giving you a piece of paper saying that you're trained your proper qualification for a year's program we found that and we put the money into that um, and we're hoping that we'll get start generating commies and young chefs off that and if they go off and leave us for a year and then come back to us they come back with more skills brilliant and then we'll look to go to schools in the year two and see can we take people from transition year who want to come and maybe earn some money in a job and still go to college as well and make a decision if that's what they really want to do I think that's a great approach to have about investing in people and then if they want to spread their wings mm-hmm. the door is always open Nevin McGuire said something yeah. about that in his talk today because we have such issues with the chef 
shortage in Ireland. If a young person was listening now and was considering a culinary career, what advice would you give to them? It's not it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. So it's a bit like if you're going to take a challenge of, driving, of, of, of um, I don't know, walking or climbing up a mountain, you're not going to sprint it up and get there. You're going to fail. You have to take it off in chunks and you have to understand it's not always going to be brilliant. But it's all about the experience and the knowledge and the, uh, that you generate along to get to that where you want to go in the end. And don't give in. It's a fantastic career. I've travelled the world. I've never been out of work. I've met some amazing people. Um, it's probably the real language uh, in, the, in the whole world. Everybody knows and understands. You can sit and have a conversation with someone from anywhere and you can communicate around food. It's an incredible. It's not easy at times, but anything that good isn't. So I would just say, listen, be in it for the long haul um, and go and work with good people at the very start and get your basics right uh, and then after that be open to be open minded be courageous um, and, and just go with a good open attitude and you'll do very well great advice well before we finish up unfortunately I'm not here tomorrow so oh. you must tell me what is on the lunch menu tomorrow what am I missing out on oh we've got I can't say because we're just finishing prepping we're doing a we're doing a seafood stew with some monkfish and some chorizo we've another vegetarian dish on today with some mushrooms um, and like, oh yes we're doing one of our signature ham hock dishes with some spelt berries and some um, um, crispy fried kale wow they're in for a treat you must that's send, the plan send the delivery <laughs> van down to me in Newcastle no problem fantastic to talk to you best of luck with the talk tomorrow I look forward to watching it online super thank you very much you're listening to the best possible taste with Sharon Noonan sponsored by the taste.ie voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine Welcome back to the best possible taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break, Mark Anderson had us all rushing to our computers to Google which companies have Gather and Gather doing their catering. Such is the quality of the food. And earlier in the programme, award-winning author Diana Henry, who's from Northern Ireland but now lives in London, shared some insights into her latest cookbook, How to Eat a Peach. If you want to catch up on best possible taste, it's repeated on West Limerick 102 FM on Wednesday mornings at 8am and the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app and it's also on the taste.ie website. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. But before I go, a shout out to the Listowel Food Fair, which opens this Thursday, the 8th of November and runs until Monday. Weekend AM presenter, actor and cookbook author Simon Delaney will do a cookery demo on the opening night in the Listowel Arms Hotel with Lizzie Lyons, who is a regular on the weekend AM cookery slots. And Lizzie's restaurant, Lizzie's Little Kitchen, is the venue for a wine goose chase on Friday evening. That's the one woman wine tasting show by Susan Boyle which is well worth checking out. It's a diverse programme as usual and all the details are on the website listolefoodfair.ie Thanks to my guests tonight, Diana Henry and Mark Anderson and to you for listening and don't forget to get in touch with all your food and drink news recipes and events. Email me s.noonan at live.ie I'll be back next week so until then Bon appétit. Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. To get in touch with The Best Possible Taste, email Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or tweet Sharon at Queen of Org. As in, Queen of Organisation. Bon appétit. <laughs>